Welcome to the In Common Podcast. My name is Stefan Partolo, and today I'm speaking with Graham Cumming. Graham is a professor at James Cook University in Townsville, Australia, and is the director of the Australian Research Council Center for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. Graham has a wide range of interests centering around understanding spatial aspects of ecology, the relevance of scale and ecosystem and social ecological system function and resilience. He's also interested in the applications of landscape ecology and complexity theory to conservation and the sustainable management of natural resources. In our conversation, we discuss his extensive international experience and the topics he has focused on throughout his career, including his upbringing in Zimbabwe. We discuss how theory is often lacking in applied research and how building theory, particularly at the relevant scales, is an important challenge in his research program. We close the interview with his vision for examining what is beyond resilience and the theoretical ideas he is interested in over the coming years. This is the In Common Podcast. We can start off with just saying maybe where you are, who you're with, and uh, what did you do today? Well, thanks, Stefan. So it's evening for me at the moment, and I'm at home. Um, so I'm on my own in, in the study, and it's just been a normal workday for me pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at, based at James Cook University in Australia, so I'm living in Townsville, Queensland. How has it been for you throughout the corona period? Have you been able to, to get out into the field to do any research? Have you been mostly doing desk-based work? Uh, how has your life been affected? Australia has been generally quite well off. We've had, uh, we had a lock, bit of lockdown period last year, but um, it didn't interfere with my field plans personally. Uh, the bigger challenge has been for our, some of our staff who have more intensive field programs than I do, and I guess for some of the students as well. So I think that professionally, the most difficult thing has been one of my students getting stuck in South Africa and unable to return, but it's been a year since she left, wow. which is not ideal in the middle of your PhD. Let's go, let's go back a little bit to the beginning. If, uh, if I'm looking at your bio correctly, you, you mostly grew up in Zimbabwe and then studied at Rhodes University or Rhodes University in South Africa before moving on to the UK and the US and back to South Africa. So how has the early part of your life really shaped your interest in research that's led up to what you do today? Yeah, so I guess my, my formative years, so to speak, uh, had a huge impact because my dad um, is a biologist as well. Uh, So is my mum, in fact. So until I was about four, we were living out on a field station pretty much in the middle of nowhere, just a couple of hundred k's south of Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe. Wow. And my dad was sort of running the field station and doing research. So I guess some of my earliest memories are things like um, sitting in a Land Rover that was camouflaged with dry grass all around and watching them dart lions. Wow. That was very exciting, you know, sitting there as a, as a small kid in this dark car and then hearing that they, they'd hung a buffalo carcass in a tree to get the lions in. And, and they did some callbacks, uh, playbacks, sorry, of lion calls. And sitting there as a little kid and seeing these shadows come in to feed on the buffalo and then hearing the sound of the dart gun go and then getting a chance to actually see a lion up close like that. So I've been, um, I, it might be in the genes or it might be upbringing, but I've been fascinated by animals since I was tiny. And then uh, growing up in Zimbabwe, of course, it's a wonderful place with the outdoors, incredible range of hiking, fishing, um, just generally outdoors stuff to do. Going, going back early, I had a lot of exposure to animals pretty much my whole life. How was being so deeply integrated to this, this idea of being out in the field and doing 
science uh, that's really engaged with nature. How how much of that was kind of direct teachings from your parents coming down, explaining what they're doing, explaining the reasons behind these things? How much of that shaped you wanting to be interested in science uh, later in life? It's hard to separate out, um, you know, the different influences, but I think certainly my dad's been a been a major influence as I as I got older. Um, he, we moved into town, but uh, he's remained heavily involved in wildlife management in different ways. Um, so we spoke a lot about uh, programs like Campfire. So he was responsible originally for helping set up Campfire back in the sort of early 1970s, I guess, in, in his role in national parks in Zimbabwe. Um, and then later on, he moved to work for the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, um, and ran the Southern Africa program there. So uh, they were very involved in a program looking at the relative costs and benefits of multi-species systems in particular. So running, uh, having land with a range of African native ungulates as opposed to simply farming cows. Uh, and then he got more and more into kind of community-based conservation and uh, human aspects of wildlife management. And I guess liked, you know, brought his work home, liked to talk about it. And so that was, I sort of grew up with a lot of that stuff going on around. Um, at the same time as having holidays, uh, mainly in Zimbabwe, in, in very wild places. This is a general trend that I've seen is that a lot of folks, and maybe that's even part of your story, is starting in more of an ecology or a biology-oriented disciplinary focus in their training early on, PhD, for example. And then as you move and have more field experience, you become more interested in the management and the governance aspects of these types of ecosystems and, and particular species. And... Did you see that transition in, in your in your father's work or in your parents' work? And then do you see that that's also been an experience that you've had? Yeah, I'd say that's, I mean, that's a, you know, that's, that observation is a good fit. <laughs> um, although I would, I would say um, I've still retained a strong kind of fundamental interest in, in just biology, you know, the, the ecological and kind of organism-centered sides of it. And so even when I've been doing much more interdisciplinary work or relatively, you know, work that that would qualify almost as social science or uh, on that end of the spectrum, the human spectrum. I've always tried to keep at least about 20% of my research program going on kind of pure ecology of some sort or another. This is a question I want to bring up later, but I think we're, we're getting in, into it now is where is that balance between this, which seems to be uh, an increasing discourse moving towards the need for more applied work, the move towards transdisciplinarity perhaps, and then also recognizing and valuing that we still need to do a lot of basic and fundamental research. You mentioned the number 20% there that you try to keep. How did you come to that decision? How do you think about balancing these two? Oh, I guess in some ways, it's more about time and time management. So typically, if you're running a fair-sized program in one particular topic area, you know you don't, you don't have more than about a day a week free to do other stuff, if you're lucky. So that 20% comes from roughly the idea that I spend about you know, in terms of the, there's obviously a lot of other stuff going on, but when I have time to focus on research, I'd say four days out of five, I'm focusing on the more interdisciplinary work. The, the pure ecology that I manage to keep running is more, um, it tends to be, uh, I've had to cut down on things with, with um, a lot of field work, unless I have the right students who are up for that. So field time comes down, uh, and then that limits as well the kind of projects you can take on. Although I think there's a bit of a career progression there right just as you move through your career you take on more responsibilities and that makes it harder to get away yeah in terms of your day-to-day -day or week-to-week <clears throat> academic life 
how do you split up your time? What is what is kind of the average week look like for you? So that's a tricky one because it varies quite a lot depending on the different stages people are at, myself included. And then the other thing is I took on the directorship of the center here about a year ago. Um, and that's also changed the balance. So I'm spending more time on administration, administrative kinds of things, managing budgets and personnel and so on more than I did. I don't, I'm lucky in the position I have that I don't have a formal course teaching component. So I do some guest lectures, um, but I, I don't really spend much time teaching classes. And then I'd say, uh, yeah, so administrative stuff, probably maybe 20%, 20 or 30% of my time. And then I spend a lot of time, it varies again with students, but you know, I've got three, three PhD students trying to finish at the moment, and that's a lot of drafts and uh, interaction going on to try and you know, wrap up those theses. And then another one who's recently started. And, and so that's also, I think with advising students, you spend more time at the beginning and the end of the project. And there's a period in the middle where they're more on autopilot or they're collecting data according to some protocol you've agreed on and they kind of know what they're doing and they just need time to get on with it. Right. But then it's a bit less work. Yeah, maybe 30% of my time on that. And then what's left gets divided up between uh, writing grant proposals or uh, writing up particular data sets I already have or occasionally collecting new data. How is the landscape in Australia for, for grant proposals? How competitive is it? Are there different options? I don't know too much about it. There's a range of options, but it's quite competitive. Uh, and it's also going very much down a, a quite applied direction at the moment. So we've got a relatively conservative government. And um, I think a bit like the Trump government did in America, they're not, they're not funding research, pure research, heavily or much. And there's, uh, they recently introduced a thing called the National Interest Test, where the minister can uh, shoot down your proposal, even if it's been passed by the reviewers, if he feels it's not in the national interest for some reason. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and then with COVID and the other economic impacts that everybody's worrying about, it's not a particularly good time at the moment in Australia for, for research funding. Partly linked to the question I had before about this balance between applied and maybe pure or, or fundamental research. Is, do you think this, when you have a situation like this, or maybe some of the funding agencies are pushing more for applied research, do you see any risks in uh, maybe folks who are not used to that, they don't have maybe as, as much integration or training with transdisciplinary work, or they don't have as much integration with social science, or training with how to integrate their work into policy practice, et cetera, the different ways you could explain it maybe, that we maybe are trying to do something that's, we're trying to make links that maybe aren't there or they're not well-established or we're trying to design research, which maybe it's not the right method. And generally I would say this is a very positive and most people in the field would agree that we'd like to move science towards a more applied direction. But I do think there are risks and that they aren't talked about as much. And I wonder if you've thought about this at all. Yeah, well, I, I mean, so I, I don't think we need to move science in a more applied direction necessarily myself. I, I feel like uh, we're actually weak on theory in a number of areas and that that in turn inspires poor practice. Mm. And uh, you can do as much practice as you like or research the, the art of practice. Um, but if the theories informing that practice are weak, you know, you, you can't do better than go beyond a certain point, basically. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, even in transdisciplinary science, you know, there's, I feel like people do transdisciplinary science, they work with stakeholders, they often achieve good outcomes. But, um, but if they had greater awareness of some of the theoretical underpinnings of what they've done, 
or doing and a stronger um, recognition of the history of the field. And they learned more from what other people have done before them or tried to do. Um, you know, we could make a lot more progress much more quickly. So, so I feel like there's a, there's a lack of that kind of broad um, synthetic overview of, you know, where have we been, where are we going? What are our priorities? Um, you know, whether it's pure or applied research, I think it's possible to do applied research in a, in a very rigorous way. I think to get there, it's got to be informed by theory and you need people who are advancing theory as well as the people who are, who are advancing the applied side. Why do you think that is? It's the, the funding, it links back to funding partly. So if they made more funding available for uh, sort of blue skies research, I think there'd be more of it around. And I think there's also, so that's partly kind of a myopic view on the part of the funders, you know, a politician's got a three or four year term in office and they want to see something tangible for, for, things that they've supported during that time period. There's also a kind of a, uh, what's the word? Um, there's a kind of a, a, a deeper issue with just the reward system in academia and the kinds of things that academia uh, supports and doesn't support. So, you know, a, a lot of the reward system is linked into how much you publish and the quality of stuff you publish and where you publish it. So getting papers into science, nature, PNAS, you know, the kind of top academic journals. And to do that, you've got to do something that's, um, it's got some theory in, but that's also got a lot of data and um, uh, the tests, hypotheses, or pushes a general area of science forward. So these days it's pretty much got to be something um, collaborative with existing data. You can't start off a PhD, or it's hard to start off a PhD and collect that amount of data. You've got to draw on existing data sets a lot. Um, but what it also means is that people who might be, for example, working out taxonomic details or um, observing really unexpected or interesting things that are going on, whether it's in ecosystems or social systems, that, that don't kind of fit with current frameworks, um, are, are not really being heard because they're not getting into the reward system. So there's a, a lot of people in ecology complaining about the death of nat natural history studies. A few journals have recently introduced natural history sections to try to encourage this. We've been doing some looking at uh, actually at work on seabird diets. One of my students is doing a project on seabirds and he's just been doing a, a lit review. And it's interesting how just information about what seabirds are eating has declined hugely since the 60s and 70s, which is when a lot of that work was done. And you might say, well, okay, now we know what they eat, so why should we care? <laughs> Like we know what they eat already and so okay that problem solved we'll move on but the fact is it, it might have changed we don't actually know because with the warming ocean there's a lot of concerns around dietary you know food availability and, and what birds are eating it's possible that they switch prey in some way and we wouldn't actually know that because nobody's doing the work now to to compare the diet you know to what it was before so that's just an example but i think there's there's lots of areas where um dropping the ball on the on the theory and also on the just some of the more straightforward observational work um, can easily lead us in, in you know to or maybe not lead us but can slow progress quite substantially so taking that how do you with for new phd students or students that you work with how do you advise them to to not drop the ball so to say um, on this aspect um, given that we have misaligned incentive structures to publish more and try to publish higher. And as you said, that leads to maybe a, a gravitation towards certain types of research, et cetera. How would you uh, advise students to, to help overcome that? 
So for students, the challenge is um, you, you're not an established researcher yet. You know, you'll probably get there, but it takes a bit of time. So you have to play the game. Think of it as a game, at least I do, as, and you have to play the game by the rules that are dictated from, you know, by the referee, which is the, the group of graybeards who sit in judgment over your papers, <laughs> <laughs> the journal editors, the grant proposal reviewers. Um, and, and that means you've actually got to, you've got to be realistic and pragmatic, I think. So for PhD projects, I don't recommend people take on things that are highly risky. Um, I, I recommend that they take on projects where it's quite easy to see a, a clear pathway to three or four publications in decent journals coming out. And that means they have to observe, you know, whatever the disciplinary norm is for that field. Um, and in some ways not do anything too surprising or exciting because, or at least not try to publish it during their PhD. Because to publish that kind of work, you've got to have more of a platform where the reviewers and, and the editors are going to say, okay, we know this person, we know they do good work. We're going to trust them to, to publish this. We're going, we're going to take a risk on this publication and, and put it out there anyway, you know? Um, so I think, I think as a student, you've actually got to be quite conservative and you've got to try and aim on getting, um, you know, high quality, data-rich publications into top journals. And, and that probably means doing something within an existing paradigm rather than trying to be too disruptive. Um, it certainly means you've got to have solid data sets. Um, if you can link up with people who've got those data and don't have time to write them up, or you can do something new with them, that's a good, good tactic. Um, collecting your own data, you probably don't have time to collect masses of data. So uh, it's good if you can add to those data sets. And certainly I advocate the idea of people spending time in the field, particularly in ecology or um, uh, more empirically, empirically based disciplines. You know, you really need to get a feel for what's going on. But I think at the same time, you've, you've, got to, you've got to play the game until you get to a certain point, and then you can gradually start experiencing a bit more freedom, basically. I like that game metaphor. I think that's, I think it's useful because I think it's, it's easy for really careers to get lost. And when you put the game metaphor is there, there are clear rules and there are clear levels and steps that you can, you can achieve. I like that a lot. It seems that a fair portion of your work, looking at some of your recent publications over the last years and interests is really moved towards this, this social ecological framing or this social ecological concept conceptualization and Maybe we can talk about whether there is a social ecological theory being developed uh, at the moment. Uh, probably, I would I would say there there isn't, and that's probably linked more to some of the methodological issues that are constantly faced by everyone who tries to do these types of interdisciplinary projects. Where do you see the kind of challenges in social ecological research right now? I see a lot of projects using that framing, but then coming back and it's still a lot of the same methods, traditional disciplinary oriented methods, and maybe some sub theories, which are related to that. And I'm wondering why this gap exists. Uh, my work particularly related to, to Ostrom's social ecological systems framework. I think this is really the case where it becomes a useful conceptual tool, but there's really this big gap. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on where you see the field right now. Yeah, I mean, I like the observations you've made. I, I, I would agree with much of what you've said. Um, I think, uh, one of the problems is still, I mean, it goes back to, I don't know, back to Durkheim. Uh, we don't have a good theory of human nature mm. um, in the sense of, you know, what, what drives people? How do they make decisions? How do their values and uh, uh, cultural background 
demographic um, sort of characteristics of the individual, how does that uh, link into what they do and what they choose to do with natural resources? And then um, again, I guess there's a whole group of people who might be saying, well, that, that doesn't matter so much because they act in aggregate and you can make some predictions about society as a whole, even if you don't understand the individuals very well. But I'm, I'm not sure we do, you know, I'm not sure we have that link between the individual and broader society fully fleshed out either. So from my perspective, that's one of the major gaps is, is if you wanted to do that um, quantitatively, because I, I like to approach problems quantitatively with numbers and, and so on. Um, if you want to do that quantitatively, then, you know, how do you do that? How do you model decision making and sort of individual agency within a system um, in a way that's consistent, robust, rigorous, can be replicated? You know, and it kind of comes down to a probabilities game. Would they do this or this or this? But uh, at the moment, at least. But I think if there were a stronger mechanistic framework informing that, um, you know, that would be a major breakthrough from my point of view uh, in terms of the social ecological. So that, that's on the social side. And then on the ecological side, people sometimes, I, I hear people say, oh, you know, we kind of know about the ecology. We understand that reasonably. Um, it's a human side that's a challenge. I don't really agree with that either because there's so much uncertainty and so much we don't know about ecosystems. Um, so there's a lot of uh, details of ecological theory that have been around for a while and people treat as fact, but I don't think are anything close to fact. So on, on the, if you think of it as a sort of a spectrum with ecological on the one side and, and purely social on the other, there's, there's, a, um, there's challenges across the full range of the spectrum. And then when you try to link the two together, um, I think people are either coming from an ecological or a social perspective often. So you'll see studies that look at say, the, the role of uh, human values in making decisions about resources, but they're thinking about that resource often as a homogeneous, unchanging thing. You know, We'll get this many fish out of the ecosystem and they're not really thinking about what's going on within the ecosystem. Or alternatively, they're coming from the ecological side and they're saying, you know, they've got all this complexity um, leading to shifts and variance in the fish community. Um, but we've got a single kind of fisher who's going to extract 10 fish a day. Right. You know, and they're ignoring all the social complexity of how that person makes decisions and um, even, even simple things like how that changes by season. You know, so I've had a, a student who's just finishing up her PhD at the moment. This is Ruby Granton. Um, looking at uh, seasonality and um, the activities of fishes at different times of year. And depending on what the weather's doing, it can have a huge impact on the level of harvesting and, you know, the whole nature of the social ecological interaction kind mm -hmm. of changes um, through time, depending on what's, you know, what the weather's like. Where do you think then are some of the, the opportunities or promising... I don't. I think the word frameworks is is also often generalized, and I think it can mean different things. Yeah. But where do you think some of the opportunities are to help move that forward? If you're talking with a student to help design a project, what can we? What are some of the practical steps that you've learned or drawn on to try to to facilitate a better understanding of those and not have one side be generalized or oversimplified? Yeah. Well, there's so there's a couple of things where I think. Um, there's a couple of areas of research where I think the social and the ecological really come together strongly. Uh, and if you focus in the middle of that point, you can't ignore one or the other. 
Um, so ecosystem services would be one example, you know, uh, um, nature's benefits to people, whatever you want to call it, um, where you've got, you've got things being produced by ecosystems, but they only become services when they're valuable to people in some way. And then even if the service is in theory valuable to someone and, and available, they don't necessarily take advantage of it if they haven't got access to it. And so if you start thinking about the kind of the interface of the different um, theories and disciplines you could use to try and just understand that kind of simple characterization I've just given you, I think there's a lot, a lot in there that, you know, that helps you go um, a kind of a combination of focus and, and going broader or trying to understand what's relevant and what's not relevant because that's half, half the battle of interdisciplinary science, I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, but that's not the only area, you know, there's other areas of social ecological research where those kind of um, artificial divides between disciplines become more apparent. Another area that I like, um, or I think about a lot is, is geography. So where things occur together in space, they can interact. If they're not in the same space, they don't interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and the same with time, of course. So there's a lot of, I think a lot of questions around geography. Um, you know, you can take almost any, even in ecology, you can take a simple uh, population model, for example, Lotka Volterra, you know, standard predator-prey model is going to, in a, in a simulation that lacks geography, it's going to produce very predictable results. Prey numbers increase, predator numbers increase more slowly, you get these kind of paired um, waveforms, one following the other. As the prey numbers decline, the predator number declines, you know, that, that kind of model. But if you take that and make it geographic, and you say, well, the predators and the prey both have locations in space, they need, um, for example, they need a, a denning area if you're a, if you're a lion. Um, the prey will go and seek shelter. They might form groups in order to escape predators or get early warning from predators. If you include those, just those simple spatial elements in the model, you suddenly find that there's a whole much wider range of outcomes that you could get. And I think it's a bit like that with social ecological systems where, um, well, for, for quite a long time now, I've been kind of pursuing the idea that perhaps um, if we could account better for space or understand better what the outcomes are of geographic processes, we might find that a lot of the variance we see in social ecological interactions is actually due to differences in space uh, rather than differences in the fundamental processes that are driving them. Um, yeah, and I guess, I guess one more thing on this theme, <laughs> I know it's a long answer, but um, I would say to students who are interested in you know, doing something a little different or, or more creative with their PhD, that a lot of the best ideas are on the boundaries. So, you know, if, and pick any pair of disciplines. If you think about um, environmental social science, let's say, uh, and psychology, and there's some really interesting questions on the boundary of, of those two disciplines, where they meet, um, or even uh, psychology and ecology, or ecology and, and um, environmental social science, or, you know, th there's a whole range of um, kind of disciplines that all, fall under the social ecological systems barrier. And I think on the edges of those, the current edges is, is also a really fertile ground to try and think about new questions or new framings, new ideas. I see that this social ecological research is, is really growing quite quickly in a lot of these disciplines. And yeah, for just for example, for students who are, or younger early career researchers who are interested in pursuing that type of research, I think on one hand, as you gave the example before, you 
it might be a good idea to be a bit conservative in the PhD things that can be easily published, build yourself, um, uh, build yourself up as a player in the game. And especially, you know, think if you're getting a PhD, for example, in political science, then you have to justify to the faculty that this is a political science PhD, even though you're looking at uh, social ecological factors on coral reefs. Um, but do you think, like from the broader perspective of, of, of the field, do you see a more need and acceptance of this blurring of the disciplinary lines more towards faculty types of positions, more towards uh, more mid-career uh, level types of funding where those types of research are going to be rewarded rather than kind of unknown about what, are you a geographer or are you a political scientist or are you an ecologist? It seems like you have papers which, which mix both. And from a career perspective, um, thinking strategically, I'd be interested if you think that that's becoming more of, a, of an accepted uh, position to exist within. I think there's more of it now than there was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. So when I first started trying to publish interdisciplinary papers, it wasn't uncommon to, um, you know, to get these reviews saying, well, you know, what is this or attacking the social science in a conservation paper. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it was quite common, a, a paper sent to conservation biology, for example, might come back saying, oh, this is too much about people, you know, we're, we're a conservation journal. <laughs> Why are you dealing with people? <laughs> Which ways used to crack me up um, for various reasons. But um, I, I think it has got, you know, that kind of side of things has definitely improved. But there are some disciplines that remain, at least in my view, subjectively, um, there's some disciplines that remain very set and very locked in to particular paradigms, basically, or particular ways of doing things. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I should, <laughs> should point fingers. But you mentioned political science, and that, that's one where the traditional political science departments, are, I, I think, are still very conservative in many ways. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think what it means is you have to be selective in your choice of publishing outlet. Uh, and if you're in a department, if you want to do that kind of work, and you're in a department where you won't get tenure if you publish in conservation biology instead of a, a, a top political science journal, um, you know, maybe that's just not the right department for you to be in, because there's certainly a much bigger audience outside political science for that kind of paper than there would be in, within the discipline itself. Well, let's go, let's go back to think about how you got to some of the more specific topics that you focus on in, in your research. And I think it's probably helpful to think back a little bit of maybe what you did at your postdoc. I, I believe you're at Oxford and then also went to the U.S. for, for a time, I believe at Wisconsin and then at the University of Florida. So what were the what were some of the topics that you were focusing on then? Well, I, so I was one of those PhD students who completely changed their topic as they, or soon after they began. <laughs> How normal, is that, is that, does everybody do that? Or is, is it just the misconception <laughs> that, uh, that nobody does that, but uh, everyone really does? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, was, was your own journey pretty simple? In terms of the PhD topic, uh, I mean, it did change, but not, uh, not fundamentally. But I think just idea that your project changes throughout your PhD and that your research question at the end and the data you end up getting is not exactly what was set out is, I think it's important to realize that from the beginning that that's pretty likely. <laughs> so, so I started out um, thinking I was gonna do more of a molecular focused uh, PhD. I was interested in parasites at that point. Um, so my PhD work was on ticks. And uh, I wanted to look at the question of, um, let, let me start again. You've got this big range of indigenous ungulates in Africa, 
many of which have tick species that uh, at the time I thought were probably quite host specific. Uh, and then around 7,000 years ago, cattle were introduced to the Horn of Africa. And they moved kind of gradually down the Rift Valley system, getting to Southern Africa, maybe two, two and a half thousand years ago. Um, and so I was interested in trying to pick up uh, signatures of which ticks had been imported with cattle and which were the indigenous ticks of Africa and how um, these events had changed sort of patterns of species distributions and kind of the, the, whether you could detect a signature of that movement of cattle uh, in the DNA of the parasites, basically. That was the concept that I went to Oxford with. Um, and it was a few months into reading and doing the background preparation that I realized that ticks were mostly not host specialists. <laughs> and that this might have severe implications for what I was planning to do. But at the same time, I got interested in the spatial patterns because some ticks seemed to be really uh, widely dispersed and others were much more localized. And so I shifted into a much more biogeographic perspective without any molecular or lab work. Um, and what worked well for me was, I mean, I've always loved maps and thinking about problems in space. And, uh, and I was able to then shift into a much more map related PhD. Um, and it was around the time that GIS systems and remote sensing kind of data management systems were starting to get to the point where a student could work with them. You didn't have to have a mainframe or a, a very fancy into to some top lab. Um, and so I guess I was in the early stages of uh, GIS and developing species distribution models, species occurrence models, um, and just got really interested in that whole problem for a while. So it was a kind of combination of the spatial statistical and this very fundamental ecological question about what, what was driving where ticks occurred at different scales, if it wasn't hosts. Yes, yeah, so I did a postdoc in Wisconsin, um, but that was working on, on streams, on fish in, in rivers. Look at the question of the, the focus of that was on impacts of impoundments in streams. Um, and it was co-funded by the Na Nature Conservancy. So there, there was quite a strong conservation focus. So I was also um, engaged in kind of contributing to conservation planning efforts around freshwater systems. The appeal of that was taking methods that I developed in 2D over big areas to think about drivers of tick occurrences and then trying to apply them to this very directional network. So it was a shift from a 2D space to a kind of one, uh, a 3D space, sorry, to a kind of a, a one or 2D network view of the world and then but still trying to apply the same methods and approaches mm -hmm. um i mean i was fed up with ticks by the time i'd finished my phd <laughs> <laughs> i never wanted to see another one or work on ticks again uh, after i finished my postdoc i'd kind of i'd overcome that um, that resistance and got a couple more papers out on ticks and actually realized some of the you know that there were interesting things after all right but i think it happens to lots of students you just get fed up with what you're working on at the time Absolutely. Um, yeah. In, in Florida, I started off thinking about invertebrates, um, but I was also uh, thinking a lot about broad scale um, heterogeneity and changing landscapes, basically. So I was hired as a landscape ecologist based on my biogeographic work, but it was only really once I'd been in Florida a while that I felt like I sort of became a landscape ecologist more deeply. And you can't think about things at broad scales without sort of noticing the impact people have on the landscape. And getting more interested in that as an alternative explanation for for ecological processes. It seems that this idea of scales, we've 
mentioned a few times has really been a through line through most of your work and even I think coming up today we might talk about after this is about scale mismatch and institutional mismatch uh, in management and how do we go about a process of determining what is the appropriate scale to look at in a particular context, I guess, is the, the question I'm interested in. I, I tend to think there's no single correct scale for a study. Um, so ideally, but it's data intensive. Um, mm. I, if I'm starting a program from scratch, I would aim for a multi-scale design where you think about the, the finest um, grain or the finest temporal resolution of the process you, you're interested in. Uh, and then you think about its broadest extent and try and span that range. Um, I can give you an example if it would help. Yes, please. Um, so we did this work on, on uh, avian influenza and water birds in Southern Africa. And the question there was, what role do wild birds play in spreading um, avian influenza around the landscape? And uh, so it's a multi-scale problem. You've got fine scale transmission between birds, you know, at the scale of a meter. Then there's potential transmission through water bodies, um, or, uh, or shared feeding sites. And then you've got movements of birds around Africa, which could be at very broad scales. You know, some of the, some of the birds that might potentially be carrying avian influenza flying to Europe and back every year from Southern Africa. So it's a very multi-scale problem. So the way we designed that, uh, given that we were limited to working in Southern Africa, was to set up five um, sites spread sort of quite far around on east, west, and north, south gradients. So we had two in South Africa, one in the South, one in the North, uh, one in Zimbabwe, and then one in Botswana and one in Mozambique. And then within each of those sites um, uh, to set up sort of 10 to 15 counting locations, counting and sampling locations. So that's a finer scale um, sort of survey design. And then the temporal side, we had two years of, of good funding for that particular project. So three of the sites we visited uh, basically we were there two weeks every two months and then the other two were just harder to get to so that ended up being every four months but it's still meant we were able to get a balanced design in space and time and then look at differences between sites differences within sites you know the kinds of contrasts we wanted to to get at whereas I think an approach saying oh we're just going to look at this at one scale and focus on a single wetland would have been much less productive yeah I'm wondering about some of these scale issues when you talked about earlier that a lot of these higher level publications uh, rely extensively on on secondary data, data which basically wasn't collected by yourself. And one of the challenges that I see in reusing some of the, the current social ecological frame data at the moment is that uh, we kind of lack this idea of methodological transparency. I think methodological transparency seems to be pushed a little bit to the back as the need for discussions and policy relevance seems to come up to the up front a little bit more and i'm wondering if there's a little crowding out there but it does seem problematic to me that some data sets are perhaps integrated when they're not really looking at the same scales so so one of the biggest problems we had on the duck project was just getting everybody at every site i had a core team in cape town but we also couldn't have done it without some some very nice collaborators particularly in zimbabwe and and in mozambique but one of the challenges we had was getting people to stick with the sampling protocol <laughs> You know, to try and make sure that everything was done the same way. Uh, we specified half hour point counts. And then, so you sit there for half an hour and count all the birds you see within 150 meter radius. And we needed that long because at some of our sites, you know, you could easily count a thousand water birds in that period. 
but people at sites that were much slower would be like, ah, oh, you know, there was nothing there. I thought I'd just leave after 10 minutes. And we're like, no, you, know, you can't do that. You've got to count the full half hour so we know that nothing arrived after you'd gone. And, and this, is the, this is the challenge. So if it's hard enough on a single project where, you know, that I was leading, um, it's much, much harder to get different researchers to agree to these standard data collection protocols. But I think that's, in a sense, that's what it's going to take. I mean, you can see in, um, in ecology, having a few standard protocols for things like how you count animals and being able to transfer those between continents or roll them out to citizen scientists to help collect data, um, you've suddenly got these massive data sets for where different species occur. And so you've got long-standing uh, things like the breeding bird counts in America or the bird atlas in Southern Africa, which you can use as a reference point and you can answer really interesting macroecological questions because you've got those data. So if there were the equivalent, um, I mean, there's a lot of public domain stuff that you can that you can kind of access in similar ways. And I've seen some exciting new um, developments in this space for social and economic systems. But if there were more of it, and in areas like institutional analysis, for example, if there were more of it, or at least more kind of carefully considered contrasts where people selectively sampled the same way in very different areas or across gradients, um, you know, I think we could make progress much faster, but it really requires a team effort. Well, it reminds me, because I know you recently led a paper advocating for a post-Ostrom research agenda, and I know a lot of the common scholars have, have for a long time advocated for standardized protocols, coding books, et cetera, to, I think, solve uh, the problem that you outlined there. And there are also downsides, I think, to this. And I think one of the criticisms in this paper, which is in uh, Current Opinion, Environmental Sustainability, we can, we can link to it in the show notes for this episode, is that it becomes a laundry list. Uh, it becomes too long. It becomes um, kind of a fascination with uh, saying that things are complex and too much or too little focus on trying to agree and come to a way to collect data, which can actually build towards uh, a theory, a social ecological theory, for example. And I was wondering, what was your process through in developing this paper? What was the motivation for kind of looking at what that problem is, because I think the, the Ostrom social ecological systems framework and her research generally is, is a good case study for what you described. Yeah. So, I mean, you've worked with it and I've worked with it and, and people who've worked with the Ostrom framework know, you know, this is, this, there is this real risk of developing a laundry list. And I think we have to be quite selective, like in the same way that you can't interview someone for five hours, you know, every... <laughs> Every student I have who's doing an interview-based project, the first cut of the interviews is, is just way too long. You've got to narrow down and focus on what you can reasonably yeah. pragmatically get. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with that Ostrom framework where we have to work out, you know, what are the critical variables? And they won't be the same for every system. But I, I would like to think that at least for comparable systems, let's say for irrigation systems, you know, the amount of water going into the system is going to be a critical variable for just about any irrigation system. And so at least if we can get agreement on a smaller subset of things that, um, that you really, really need, uh, there may be scope there for developing theory. Um, I also think the role of models has been uh, downplayed or underused um, in, this, in, in the Ostrom area in general. So I think we should be doing more building of models and exploring with models and using models to help us say, well, 
this is an interesting variable, but it's not so important as opposed to this is a, a really important variable that we need more information on. So I'm not saying, I don't think there's a silver bullet, but I think um, it should be possible to come to agreement on a smaller subset of variables that's you know, kind of worth, worth exploring, like just generally it will be useful. Um, and, and even some of that might be more kind of meta measurements, you know, things like diversity or number of number and kind of a particular sort of unit. You know, I think there, I think there's ways around some of it, but it lacks standard protocols and it lacks um, uh, if it lacks that mechanistic understanding where there's a clear link from the data you're collecting to theory, then then that's also problematic. I think it would be useful to to maybe. <laughs> dive into this specific paper because I think it talks one about how do you pick and select a, a select amount of variables which are meaningful for a particular study and scale and this tying of social and ecological data together and this is a paper that uh, is published in One Earth uh, which you led recently I believe last year titled quantifying social ecological scale mismatches mismatches suggest people should be managed at broader scales than than ecosystems and i found it a cool study design it seems like you had great access to some of the the permitting data in the in the great barrier reef marine park what did you guys do in this paper um what i like about this paper is we were able to get spatial data on institutions so it's it's rules in use permits uh, it would have been nice to be able to complement that with actual use data, so where people were going and what they were doing. Having a permit doesn't necessarily mean you're using that, mm. using that permit, basically. But what I like about it is um, is the the aspect of being able to get spatially at aspects of the social system, which is one of those things that I kind of there's actually surprisingly few data sets I've encountered where you can do that nicely, actually get at institutions and their and their spatial footprint. So that's one thing. And then, and then what we've tried to do is to say, um, if we wanted to actually quantify scale mismatches, rather than just saying, because it's, it's an appealing concept, and I've, it's, I've been surprised by how widely it's been used. Um, but a lot of it is just saying, well, we think there's a scale mismatch. or you know. So then I start thinking, well, how do you know? How, how can you be sure there's a scale mismatch? Or is it just one scale mismatch? Or are there lots of scale mismatches? You know, how many scales have you got in your system? It's not just a one-scale system or a two-scale system. There are lots of stuff going on there, right? Um, and is one of the scales mismatched, or are they all mismatched with each other? Have you got five scales and four are mismatched, and one's, you know, you can get yourself into knots this way. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Pretty easy, right? So I was thinking, well, what we need to try to do is to quantify those scales and to actually put numbers to them, and then we can plot it out, and we can answer these questions much more clearly. So it's a first uh, somewhat clumsy, but I think quite interesting step towards actually quantifying what are the scales. So we looked at the scales of permits, so the extent of, of permits within the uh, marine park. And then we looked at the extents of ecological features that permits related to, particularly focusing on reefs and islands, um, all of which are, you know, the advantage of that study system is they're nice and clear to bound. You can say where's, where's reef and where's not reef reasonably easily in most circumstances, and there's good maps of those features. Mm -hmm. um, so we pulled together a whole data set linking those, those different things and then took the, um, the polygons describing the institutions or describing the ecological features and uh, calculated the areas for all of them and then looked at how the distributions of those two data sets matched up or didn't match up. And it was interesting. It wasn't what I expected. I'd been expecting to find pretty much a normal distribution with, you know, with a clear cut 
uh, mean and you know this is basically the scale that briefs exist at uh, and this is basically the scale of permitting but many of the data sets were were bimodal so we broke down the permit data by the kind of permitting a permit for controlling invasive species might be quite different to one for tourism for example anyway but but what emerged from that was that the extents of permits for human use were often quite a lot larger than the extents of the ecosystems they were relating to you know, so we mulled, we mulled over that a bit, and my collaborator, my co-author on the paper is, has been responsible. She's, she's no longer in that position, but she was responsible for many years for running the permitting program. So she had a lot of great insights into what permits involved and who was applying for them and how that whole process worked. A good sort of way of looking at it was be to imagine you're a, you're a biologist and you want to collect a small piece of coral that you can do a DNA test on for your taxonomic or molecular biology project. You don't get a permit for one square meter of reef because you don't know which square meter of reef your particular species of coral is going to grow on. So what you do is you go and get a permit to sample the whole reef or even a couple of reefs and you hope that your coral is going to be somewhere on those reefs right and then you go and you break off a, a tiny piece about the size of your thumb and that's actually all you take out of the park project. So if you think about it that way um, it kind of makes sense that people actually need to have choice they need to have options and the way they get those options in managing ecological systems is to have the option to manage it at a broader scale than they really need to. If you've got, if you, or another um, simile, if you're a, you know, if you're a farmer and you've got five fields, um, you don't have cows in all five of your fields. You run cows in two of your fields, and then you can choose which field to put them in. Right. You know, it's the same. It's of actually, and the more the more I thought about it, the more I think it's actually quite a fundamental principle of how we manage natural resources. Is we like to have a, a broader uh, ability to manipulate the system than the thing we're really interested in. But what what the exercise as a whole shows so that that hypothesis may or may not be correct, right? It's still kind of early stage and needs testing and, and all the rest of it. Um, but what I found interesting was that going through the exercise of trying to quantify stuff. And then looking at what those quantitative analyses showed actually led me to a different understanding of the problem than I'd had before. And I would never have, it, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me that this might be a, a reasonable hypothesis without going through that exercise. Wow, that's what, that's what we all want from projects. <laughs> I feel <laughs> something, yes. we do a project and it tells us something completely different than we thought. And then we, we learn something. Before, we, before I take too much of your time, I know it's getting late for you there. And it occurred to me that this interest in scale, we talked a lot about space, but I think one big missing uh, part of that is time, uh, especially in our field. It's it's hard to get longitudinal data. It's hard to get go back to the same places. I think particularly it's also related to, to some extent through incentives and short-term funding lines, et cetera. Do you see a particular opportunity for us to combine data sets over time to really invest? And um, has any of your work looked at uh, changes over time in social ecological systems yeah it's one of those things where it's a, it's become a bit of a sort of holy grail right to be yeah. able to get good comparable um, standardized data collected with the same protocol over a long time period for both the social and the ecological components i mean you can you know there's various studies getting at it in different ways i've never really had a, a very strong data set like that to work with that's not um purely ecological so, uh, I mean, there's quite a few ecological data sets around that have, you know, long time series of very standardized observations. There's a whole bunch of um, LTER sites in America, and there's equivalents in South Africa for some of those. People have tracked things like vegetation or, 
or land use. Land use is another one um, of, over very long periods of time. But it's the what's missing from that is the details of the institutions or the human agents within the system that would be nice to add. I mean, the way I see it is pe people back then somehow were able to wrangle the funding and had the vision to start those projects, knowing that they might only harvest the benefits in five years or 10 years or whatever it would be. And so we need to somehow figure out how to make that possible again, right? I guess one way of phrasing the question is, are we shooting ourselves in the foot as a field by not thinking more extensively about timescales? I'd like to wrap up with any of your thoughts on, on what makes you excited about research going forward what uh, when you think about designing new projects and um, things which really you're passionate about and bringing together your expertise and experience what what kind of research do you want to do going forward well there's lots you know <laughs> um so, Every, so everything quite broad interest and there's, there's loads of stuff that i think is really interesting in the shorter in the shorter time frame there's a there's some sort of things that have been bugging me for years that i want to get to in the next five or ten years at least one of them is putting ecology into uh, ecosystem services. So although it's called ecosystem services, to me, it's very much an economic concept. And there's a lot of just fundamental ecology that's lacking. Um, and that, that's gonna have to handshake with a similar depth in, in the social science. So that's quite a, quite a project. Um, another one is upscaling. So I've been, um, we've got a couple of papers out on this looking at how uh, as societies grow they upscale basically they change the scale at which they're deriving resources and that has all kinds of implications for system dynamics and resilience um, and so i'm really interested in that role of uh, understanding that upscaling process better it's slow progress it seems to be i have to sort of sit on it and think about it for a while before figuring out what the next step is but i'm, I'm pretty excited about some of the directions that's been going um, and I've seen a couple of papers by other people lately that have picked up on some of those ideas, which is also really nice. That's cool. And I feel like, you know, people are sort of noticing and yeah. starting to think about it because it goes much faster when, you, when you've got more people thinking about it. Absolutely. And then another question I've been mulling over is, you know, we've had resilience theory has been quite a theme, at least from my perspective, for the last maybe 10 or 20 years. Um, and I'm slowly seeing some shortcomings, but I'm, I'm grappling to figure out if that's is that like just that I lack the mathematical background to fully understand what some of the models are saying? Or is there a broader problem where understanding of the world is being constrained by what can be modeled? And so I'm, I've been thinking a lot lately about what, what comes after resilience, like what's the next step up? Um, and I think that, you know, that's going to be a tough one to crack. So that's still very early stage ideas. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of you can probably guess, but there's a lot of material there that I think yeah, need some careful thought and good scholarship. Wow, any preliminary thoughts on what follows resilience? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need a broader theory of change that can that can cope with directional change and uh, connection to identity. So, I've been working for some time on on questions around identity and how you kind of define social ecological systems and what's important. Like, how do you answer simple questions? Like, has my system changed? Is it still the same system I started working on three years ago or not? You know, what level of, what magnitude of change would cause it to be a different system? Um, and I think some kind of integration, if you think about resilience theory, um, there's that metaphor, uh, metaphor to measurement paper, Steve Carpenter, um, a bunch of other kind of resilience alliance co-authors that speaks about operationalizing resilience in terms of the, uh, you need to think of resilience of what to what, 
and I also think you need to think for whom uh, and potentially where. But if you think about those different aspects, we've done a fair bit on, on some pieces of that, but there's questions around of what, of what is not actually, surprisingly, is not really well defined in much resilience theory. And then to what we kind of know there's perturbations out there and there's been a lot of attention paid to that. But you have all kinds of other things going on that systems would need to be resilient to if they, if they want to maintain their identity, not just the standard perturbations that are discussed. Uh, and then how do they be resilient? You know, that's a whole other set of questions and challenges there. And then if you start getting into the for whom, you enter this terrain where you're thinking, well, how does the, you know, how much is in the eye of the beholder? Right. Um, and, and how do you get at that or include that in a, in a research agenda where you're trying to pin down resilience theory and operationalize it, but the for whom might be, you know, three different communities in the same area who will have different perspectives. So I think there's a lot of synthesis, synthesis and integration there needed. And I, I don't think it's a problem I'll be able to definitively answer, but I think I can make progress with it or at least help to frame it. Should be doable in the next five years. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is produced by Michael Cox, Courtney Hammond-Wagner, and myself. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on any podcast app or listen on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. On our website, you will find our link to our blog and our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InCommonPod.